be seated. The children will remain in service today, and we have our good friend, Dr. John, straight from Philly today. He's going to preach the gospel for us. So let's get ready. Let's see what he has to tell us. Thank you. You mind if I bring this mic down to normal height? (laughs) You know, there's nobody in heaven over five feet, eight inches. That's the truth. Because we're all going to be like Jesus. I've never seen a Jew that, that tall. So uh, we're all going to be five foot eight. <laughs> Take your Bible and look with me tonight in James chapter five. It's always a delight to be with my friends at Sonship. I really love you guys. Grace Church of Philly is grateful for your generosity for 10 years to us and your continued generosity. Uh, You recently made a gift to Grace Church that made it possible for us to buy study Bibles for all of the pastors we've been teaching in Africa, in Cameroon, about 40 pastors, and uh, they will graduate in March, and uh, we wanted to give them a good study Bible in French, so we were able to uh, buy uh, 40 French John MacArthur study Bibles, and uh, they will have a good tool to be able to study God's word and sonship made that possible. So uh, you are having an impact all the way to Yaounde, Cameroon, and not just Yaounde, but into some of the remote villages. Uh, Honestly, a couple of these pastors will have to learn how to read before they can use the Bible because some of them uh, don't even read or write, but they have amazing Minds that take everything in. It's like they have photographic memories. Uh, and they go into these remote villages and preach the gospel and plant churches. So thank you. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. The message tonight is uh, pretty straightforward, and I'm going to give you up front what your response should be to the message. I'll make it easy. I'll give the invitation up front. Everybody should respond to this message in one of two ways. Either you come back to the Lord, if that's what you need to do today. And if you're walking with the Lord, then this text is calling you to go after those who need to come back to rescue believers. And that's what I want to talk tonight about from our text is rescuing believers. I'm in James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 and then I will conclude the message with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. But listen to God's word tonight, James 5 verse 19. My brothers, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Now, if you're familiar with the epistles of the New Testament, you recognize that the ending of James's epistle is unusual. Because normally at the end of an epistle, the Apostle Paul or John, they are giving personal greetings to people. You know, greet this household and greet that, that household and, and uh, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're giving very personal greetings. But with James, there's an urgency. And he's ending his epistle with an appeal that God's people go after believers that are wandering and they rescue them. They actually may rescue them from death. And if they rescue them, they will cover a multitude of sins. We'll look at what he's talking about uh, in those words. James has been encouraging believers, as you know, to live out their faith. If you believe the gospel, if you really grasp the gospel, if you understand who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for you and how he rose from the dead, if you rest in that, you have faith. You have nothing else to offer God except you have faith that the gospel is true. Then James says that faith works its way out into every aspect of life. And if you don't have any works that demonstrate faith, then you have a faith that is dead. It's as simple as that for him. He ends the epistle telling us that a vibrant, genuine faith is working in all circumstances of life. He earlier said, is anyone among you suffering? Well, if you're suffering as a Christian, what does faith lead you to do? He says, let him pray. And is anyone cheerful? Life is good. How do you respond if you're living out your faith? Let him sing praise to God. Is any among you sick? And I translate that as spiritually weak. That particular Greek word is not the normal word for physical sickness. So I take it to mean spiritual weakness. If any among you are spiritually weak, you understand that you are struggling to live out the gospel in your life. If you're weak, he says, call for some spiritual people. Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you. If you're really interested in living out your faith and getting past this weakness in your life, then bring godly people around you to pray for you because their prayer is effective like Elijah's prayer was. But then he says, if any among you is wondering, is going astray, That is, they're not only spiritually weak, but they don't have as much concern about their life that they're willing to call anybody for help. They're just going farther and farther away. And this can happen to any of us if we don't 
Keep believing the gospel because faith is not just an initial experience. Oh, I walked the aisle and I confessed Jesus and I believed in him. But faith is always an ongoing reality in our life. I keep repenting of my sin. I keep believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I keep treasuring Jesus Christ because when I am no longer in treasuring Christ, when he is no longer my delight in life, then when I suffer, I don't pray, I complain. And when I'm cheerful, when times are good, I don't praise God. I take advantage of the good times for my own selfish interest. But if Christ is always my delight, if the gospel is always my greatest treasure, then whatever circumstance in life I am in, it will always point me Godward and Christward. So if I suffer, I pray. If times are good, I thank God for them and I praise him for that. And if I feel like I'm struggling in my life, I don't want to struggle. So I call others to help me. But in this text, James is calling us to help others. If there's someone among you who is a different kind of Christian, he's one who is deliberately turning away from the Lord. He's one who no longer sees the gospel at his greatest treasure and his deepest delight. But other treasures have come in. Other things have become idols and delights in his life. He says, if there's someone like that that you know, they're not here today. They're not worshiping today. You haven't seen them in a while. You remember when they walked with the Lord, when they sang his praises, when they prayed in suffering, when they were grateful for the good times, but they're wandering away. The gospel is no longer their greatest treasure and delight. James says, go after them. Bring them back and save their soul from death. This is a call to the community of believers to rescue wayward brothers and sisters. It's not an evangelistic text that we should be all about evangelism. We should be bringing the gospel to people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But this is a call to bring the gospel to those who already know the gospel but no longer treasure the gospel. Go after them, he says. And so today, from our text and from Galatians 1, I want to ask and answer a couple of questions about what it means to rescue other believers. The first question is simply this, why would any believer need to be rescued? Or we could put it another way, why do we wonder from the truth? How do believers wonder from the truth? There's an old hymn that has a phrase to it that many have felt spoke to their own hearts and described their own experience. The writer wrote, I believe it was Wesley, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I've been a believer for 50 years. And I must say that every day of my life, 
I keep fighting to believe the gospel. And I keep fighting against the depraved desires of my heart and inclinations of my heart that the battle goes on 50 years later. Now James told us earlier in the book why that happens. He says when lust conceives... By lust, the word simply is desire, very strong desire. In a context where the desire is for something evil, then it's translated lust. If it's for something good, like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, if any man desires the office of a bishop, it's the same word. It's a strong, compelling uh, desire for something good. But when it's for evil, it's lust. And he says, when lust, when these strong desires for what is evil conceives, it brings forth sin. I like to pride myself in being pretty disciplined. I get up early. I read my Bible. I know how to do the right thing. Uh, Even when I don't feel like doing the right thing, I can always discipline myself to do what is what I'm supposed to be doing. I sort of pride myself on that. And my, my problem is not that I don't do the right thing. That's not my struggle. My struggle is deep within. I have desires. Even though I'm created new in Christ, the, as MacArthur describes it, the vestiges of the old man, what is left over of that old man still resides in me. And I find my mind going places at times that, that I hate and I repent of and I cry out. God, I don't ever, I don't want to think that, but I I do think that. And I keep fighting these desires of my heart. It's what James calls lust. It's in all of us. We have these appetites for things that we think will make us feel better, look better, do better. That'll make us secure or happy. That'll give us some sort of significance. And, you know, our lives are respectable. People look at it and say, you, you, you live like a good Christian. But if you're a Christian, you're always fighting these alternate desires in your heart. And if you're not fighting them, if you're not watching your heart, As the writer of Proverbs says, keep your heart with all keeping. For out of it are all the issues of life. So, you know, he he uses a double emphasis in the Hebrew. Keep it with all keeping. This is serious. What is going on in your heart? What are you desiring? And what are you doing with those desires? Are you fighting them? Or are you nurturing them? I was with some men the other night enjoying some time together like a band of brothers in the gospel. And they were just being honest about, almost too honest for me, about 
some of the desires that they have. You know, a, 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 a man can say that, you know, there's a, a, a woman at church that, that, you know, I'm a married man and she's a married woman, but I, I feel this attraction toward her. Well, that's not evil in and of itself. I mean, my dad always said as a Christian, he says, I, I, I didn't go blind when I became a Christian. Yeah, he recognizes beauty. You know, he, he, he didn't go blind. I didn't go blind. But what are you doing with that? It's like Walter Wangren in his book, As for Me in My House, he has a wonderful chapter on how to avoid adultery. And he talks about the moment of maybe. And he says there comes in everyone's life, man and woman, this moment of maybe. You know, maybe it was just that handshake with the opposite sex, but it felt like more than just a handshake. Or a hug that was a little bit too prolonged. Or the kiss on the cheek and the smell of the perfume that caught you. And your mind begins to think, could there be more? That's the moment of maybe. And Wangrin says, and rightly so, what you do in the moment of maybe ultimately determines the outcome. If you take that moment and you cherish it and you develop it, you think about it and you enjoy it, then you are going down a road, you are letting appetite, you are letting lust conceive, you are bringing it to fruition where eventually, I mean, it already has become sin once you've begun to nurture it. Or you can fight it as this man says he does. I know it's wrong, I don't want it, and I avoid it. He says, at one point I found myself looking in the mirror on Sunday morning and becoming more conscious of how I appeared, not for my wife, because I might run into this woman. And I repented. Why do believers need to be rescued? Because we don't keep our hearts. We let appetites grow and we feed them and nurture them and they become the idols in our life that begin to satisfy us just the thought of them and the entertaining of them in our minds begins to satisfy us in a way that only God should be satisfying us that's why the writer of Hebrews said said take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another every day. So you ask your brother, how you doing with your thought life? Don't just say, have you been faithful to your wife? I've been faithful to my wife for 45 years physically, but oh, the mind, how often we repent of what is going on deep inside of us.
That's why the writer of Hebrews says we need the word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces deep because if you're in the word of God, if you're hearing the word of God, you're in a Bible preaching church, you're reading God's word. The word of God is always probing your heart and probing your conscience and showing you your sin. So it begins in the heart. But when lust conceives, when our will assents to, gives into, agrees with our desires, when we nurture them, then we begin to make choices that are no longer motivated by the desire to glorify God. The term he uses here for your brother wondering implies a deliberate, not an accidental departure. Sometimes the wrong turns that we make in life may seem subtle, but we're still responsible for them. And we're responsible for the outcome. I don't know how many people I've seen over the years who, you know, they were upwardly mobile. They wanted to live in a better life, a better neighborhood, a better house, and they moved away. They never searched first to see if there's a Bible preaching church in the neighborhood. I am sure that God does not want you to move to a place where there is no ability for you to be nurtured in the word of God and to fellowship with other believers unless your plan is to start one. But that subtle move, and then you find out they don't go to church anymore. They got the boat now. They're out on the Chesapeake on Sundays. They're subtle, but our choices are real and they have real consequences. And once we make the one choice that goes contrary to the will of God, it's amazing how easy it becomes to make the second one. Because often what happens when we choose wrong, when we wander away, we take that first step and God doesn't pounce on us. He doesn't judge us. We're still enjoying it. And this evil mind of ours begins to think, well, maybe God doesn't disapprove. Maybe he's disinterested in my life. Maybe it's okay. And so you make the next choice and the next choice. And soon you find yourself on a path of life with a pattern of life that is so difficult to come back from. And James says, if you see a brother who is going down that path, of course, people will say, well, you don't have the right to judge me. Well, what do you mean by that? If you mean I don't have the right to pass a final verdict on you, you're right because that's, that's God's responsibility alone. But if you mean that I don't have the right to evaluate the fruit of your life and the actions of your life and to determine that, that you are departing from God. You're wrong. 
Because a, a, a righteous man makes righteous judgments. And he's consistent enough that he judges others by the same standards that he wants to be judged with the word of God. But if you have a pattern of life that is contrary to scripture, then it doesn't matter how much you say, I love Jesus. You don't treasure the gospel. The other day I walked around the corner from church and there's a man there that I've been working on for a few years, actually performed his wedding a couple of years ago and they both made professions and uh, came to church a couple of times, but haven't seen him in, in a while. And so I walked into his place of business and he says, oh, Pastor John, how you doing? What, what are you doing here? I said, uh, I'm visiting delinquent churchgoers. And he smiled. He's from Trinidad. He's always smiling. I said, you know, when you were Roman Catholic, the church said, if you don't go to church, you go to hell. So you went to church. Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Do you love Jesus? He didn't know what to say. He didn't want to say, yes, I do, because he knew I was coming back with something else. But it's as simple as that. Do you love me? Do you love Christ? Because as long as you treasure the gospel and the gospel's your greatest delight, then you will seek to have a life that is conforming to his will and to his word. But you can judge somebody straying. Of course, the, the last sign of that normally is they're not publicly fellowshipping with the people. of That's normally the last sign. When somebody stops coming to church and they've sort of, they're walking a different way, it's not that something just happened in their life that drove them out of church. No, there was a pattern of evil thinking, of nurturing evil desires that they were able to maintain public acceptability for a while, but their heart a long time ago had left. And we can't see the heart. All we can see are habits and actions, and, and, but when we see them, when James, James says, when you become aware that a brother is wandering from the truth, and by that I don't think he means that he has dropped uh, good theology, that he's given up on good theology. I think from the context of James is that he's no longer living out a life that is consistent with his confession of being a believer. And when you see that, he says, go after him. Because when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, will ultimately bring forth death. For ourselves, we should always be praying with David Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. 
try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Show me that and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, there's a part of me that wishes so much longing for that day when, as Paul says, we're groaning for that redemption. I I want to be rid of this body and rid of this mind and rid of these desires. And, you know, I've even foolishly asked God, take them away now, which he can do, but he doesn't do. He lets me live with the struggle. Because every day I have the opportunity, many times every day I have the opportunity to either say, I love you, Jesus. And I'll say no to any alternate competing idol in my life. I love you, Jesus. Or I can say, no, I love the other offers better. He lets us live with the struggle because it's an opportunity to demonstrate our love. Every one of us must daily fight the battle of a wandering heart. And if you haven't come to that, if you haven't come to grips with that in your life, then I guarantee you're failing. If you're looking for a place in your life where the fight is over, that's never going to happen. You're going to fight sin every day of your life. You're going to fight what is in your heart. Secondly, I'm going to ask this question. What is the process of rescuing believers? How do we do that? And James doesn't go into great, great detail. He just repeats a phrase twice. If someone brings him back, or whoever brings back a sinner. And if you read Greek, you would understand that the word that's translated bring back is actually the language of conversion. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Peter said, repent and turn back. Or the old King James says, repent and be converted every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus that your sins may be blotted out. It is the language of conversion. He's saying that you need to go after other believers and they need to be converted. They need a radical turnabout in their life that's Similar to, but not identical, but very similar to what happens when you become a believer for the first time. We bring back believers the same way that we bring unbelievers to Christ. How do you bring back a believer? You preach the gospel to them. Because the reason they're wandering, they're wandering away is they've lost sight of. They no longer treasure. They no longer delight in what God has done for them in Christ. They no longer see as we sing, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He put his languid eyes on me as beneath his cross I stood. How can it be 
upon a tree. The Savior dies for me. My soul is filled. My heart is thrilled to think he died for me. This is what captures us in the beginning. That a holy God becomes man, takes on flesh to live the life that we could never live, to be covenantally faithful, and then to die the death that all of us covenant breakers deserve. He dies the death for us. He did that for me, and I don't deserve it. Both non-believers and believers are converted through the preaching of the gospel. We have no other means to bring back sinners. It's not my sympathy with them. It's not the niceties that I may share with them or the things that I may do with them. They may all open the door for a gospel conversation. But ultimately, every wandering believer needs another believer in his life who is preaching the cross to them. Because when you preach the cross, the Holy Spirit brings deep conviction in the soul of the one who is wondering and the Holy Spirit leads to repentance and renewed faith there is no other means but the preaching of the gospel for unbelievers there's one means of them coming to Christ preaching the gospel of Christ For believers who are wondering and need to be rescued, they need to hear the gospel. Sing it over to me again, wonderful words of life. Or tell me the old, old story. Again, it's what the old reformers called for ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day. But we not only preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we preach the gospel to each other. Because what do we need? What do I need to have a life that's full and satisfied and happy? I need Jesus. I need to rest in Jesus and believe in Jesus and delight in Jesus. I need to know more of Jesus Christ. And when I'm straying, What do I need? I need a renewed vision of that one who gave his life for me, who hung on the cross in my place. It's the gospel that God uses to bring a dead sinner to life. Imagine that, those who are dead in trespasses and sins. How in the world can you bring somebody spiritually dead to life? God says, preach the gospel to them. And by the gospel and means of the spirit, new life comes. Well, how about believers that are like they're dead? They're asleep. How do you awaken a believer. You preach the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. The radical conversion that is necessary to bring dead sinners to life and sleeping Christians to life can only be brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says if our gospel's hidden, it's hidden to them that are lost. And he would say, we, 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 we could apply it to believers. If the gospel is hidden to, to believers, it's hidden to believers that are wandering away. And Paul says the remedy for that is we proclaim not ourselves. We don't just sit by a believer's side and say, you know, I'm your friend. I care about you. You know, I really want to see you come back. That's all nice. He says, we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. For me, the simplicity of what happened on the cross is what motivates my heart and soul every day. As a young Christian coming out of a drug culture, messed up life, sinful, wicked mind, when that gospel hit me, that he loved me the way I was and died for me, and even though I was his enemy, when that gospel grasped my heart, I can't imagine a day in my life when I don't say, Thank you, Lord. Now, I've learned a lot more since then. I finished high school when I was 19. A dropout, but I finished. Went to Bible college. Got a master of divinity. Got a master of theology. Got a doctor of ministry. Filled my head with all kinds of theological nuances, which I appreciate. But nothing is as profound and moving as he died for me. If I knew nothing else, and I would say in many ways, my dad was like that. I think he had a sixth grade education, was a prison guard most of his life. Wasn't interested in really anything else. His wife, his kids, but not in reading, not in politics, not in higher education. He was just consumed with one thing, the gospel. As a 23-year-old drunkard, God saved him, and he never got over that. He used to embarrass me because he never saw a stranger. Everybody he met, he had to tell about Jesus Christ. That simple truth, he died for me. And when that is no longer the most meaningful, when that is no longer the greatest treasure, the deepest delight of my life, when what Jesus did for me becomes old stuff, then that's the beginning of wandering away. 
Thirdly, what is the outcome of rescuing believers? He describes it in two phrases. If you bring back a wayward, a wandering believer, you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. About the time I became a Christian in Philly, there was this movement of God in our little neighborhood in Feltonville, which is, happens to be where we have a church right now. It's a different world than it was then. But there were a number of people who got saved. I remember the one friend of mine, Robbie, went to the same Bible college I did, came out and was a youth pastor. And I don't know what, what happened in his thinking, but apparently lust conceived. And he began frequenting bars, cheating on his wife with someone else's wife. And one night he walks out of the bar and somebody literally with a sword decapitates him. Now, he was killed by the sword. But there is a sin, John says, that leads to death. Obviously, 1 John chapter 5 says that there is a sin not unto death. That is, we all know that because we all sin and we haven't died today. You're still here. So we all know there are things that we can do that God doesn't end our life for. But then John says, there is a sin unto death. And I say, you should not, and this is my translation, inquire about it. I think some of the translations say pray about it. But the word there is really inquire about it. That is, John is saying, you should never be thinking Can I do this and not die? You know, what are the sins that I can do? And God still let me live. And what are the sins that would end in my death? John says, don't even ask about that. He says, just know that all unrighteousness is sin. Sin is sin. Whether your life ends by it or not, sin is sin. But both John and James and Paul teach us that believers do die prematurely because of sin. Paul says when you come to the Lord's table, examine yourself to see that you're not taking that unworthily. And by unworthily, he means you're taking it with disregard to the cross. Not that you're perfect, but if you have regard for the cross, you're repentant. You're confessing. None of us come to the Lord's table perfect, but we come with regard to the cross, calling us to repentance and faith. And Paul says, 
Because some of you have come unworthily to the Lord's table. You've just taken that little piece of bread and eaten it, and you've taken that cup and you've drank it. He said, for this reason, some of you are sick. And some of you are weak. And some have died. Now, I don't know the mind of God, how he works that and how he measures that out. But I do know that God is so concerned for his own glory that he will not let genuine believers persist in ungodly lives forever. That he does discipline the lives of his children and sometimes determines that I am better off in his presence than I am on earth dishonoring his name. So James says, go after believers. The ones that are wondering, go after them. Preach the gospel to them. Because if they respond and they repent and they turn, you may save a soul from death. You may keep that father in that home a little bit longer and that husband there and that wife there on earth a little bit longer because you brought the gospel to them and they've heard it and the spirit of God has worked and they've repented. I think that's a pretty significant work for all of us to be involved in. Saving believers from a premature death. Think of how many Christians you know who you wonder, what are they doing now? What happened to them? Where'd they go? And maybe you didn't even pray for them, but you certainly didn't go after them. You didn't pursue them. You didn't bring the gospel to them again like like you would to someone who's lost. We need to be committed not only to rescuing people, souls from an eternal hell. That's evangelism. But we need to be committed to rescuing wandering believers from the discipline of God that might result in their premature death. That is a good and noble ministry. And then he adds, and you will cover a multitude of sins. You may note the similarity between that and 1 Peter 4, 8. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love does that. Because if you love someone who is erring, someone who is wondering, someone who is not living out their faith, if you love them, you preach the gospel to them. You pray for them. You go after them. You love them some more. You bring the gospel some more. You want to see them repent. And when they repent and they're restored, that multitude of sins is covered. It's gone. God doesn't remember them against them anymore. 
Doesn't matter how far you've run, how bad you've become, doesn't matter how ugly your life is in your rebellion against God, when you come back and repent, you're forgiven, you're restored, and a multitude of sins is covered. Unfortunately, my experience amongst believers too often has been that when another believer falls and wonders, it becomes a matter of criticism or gossip or condemnation. And the intent is more to expose the ugliness of the sin rather than to see it covered by forgiveness and redemption. They would rather talk about their sin to others rather than talk to him or her about their sin. I remember I had a pastor friend back in the 90s who was plastered on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was implicated in a financial scandal that touched so many Christian institutions throughout the U.S. And uh, there was his picture, pastoring a very large evangelical Baptist church. And I could just hear my pastor friends talking about him. The assumption of guilt, especially if you don't like somebody, then... It's easy to find them guilty. And later my friend told me how he felt. That he was innocent. It turned out he was innocent. Never indicted. Never charged. But his reputation was so damaged he had to leave that church. But he told me how he felt being accused as guilty without anyone ever coming and saying What happened? I sat with breakfast with him many times and he explained the story to me. He had some bad friends. He was in the wrong place, but I really believe he was not guilty. But we would rather criticize, condemn, expose. Maybe it makes us feel a little bit better than to go to a brother and to find out what's really happening here. And when a brother is going astray, it's easy to say, well, yeah, I, I always thought they, they weren't real. You will save a soul from death and you will cover a multitude of sin. Let me close with this. If you would take your Bible and look in Galatians 6, 1 for just a moment. I want to answer the fourth question. What kind of person does it take to rescue other believers? And just very quickly, out of Galatians 6, 1, note three qualifications of the one who is equipped to rescue other believers. Galatians 6, 1 puts it this way. Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you see your brother in sin. You who are spiritual 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Let me suggest there's three qualifications of anyone who will rescue other believers. One, he says, you who are spiritual. Now you might say, well, I have the spirit that makes me spiritual. And there is a Greek word, by the way, that would be translated the same way, spiritual, meaning you have the spirit. Unfortunately, in English, we have one word spiritual, so it translates two different Greek words the same way. Again, the one means you possess the spirit, you're spiritual, every believer is spiritual. But the other one means you are characterized by the spirit. You don't just have the spirit, but as he talked about earlier in chapter 5 of Galatians, you have the characteristics of the spirit in your life. You don't have the works of the flesh, but you have love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. You have the Spirit of God who is working in your life. You're living in the Spirit. You're walking in the Spirit. You're characterized by the Spirit of God. If that's you, by the grace of God, then you are equipped to go after other believers. If you're going after other believers, it shouldn't be some, like some of the recovery groups I've seen. I know you guys have a recovery group here and I assume it's a really good one. We have one at Grace Church. My brother leads it along with uh, my, our Latino pastor's wife. My brother was a heroin addict. You know, I had the joy of leading him to Christ in 1973, and he sort of took the same journey I did, you know, finished high school, bachelor's, master's, master's, doctorate, and another doctorate. He had to pass me. <laughs> but he gathers these men and women that are struggling with addictive issues. And he's been there, but he's recovered. I've seen groups where everybody is struggling. Everybody is struggling and everybody's talking about their struggling and struggle and nobody is finding victory. Now, if you're going to rescue believers, then you need to be walking with the Lord characterized by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, enjoying a measure of victory in your own life, winning the battle in your own mind, fighting it, but winning it by the grace of God. Secondly, he says, you heard gentle. Do it, he says, in a spirit of gentleness. Later, he'll say, if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Some of us think too much of ourselves to really help others. But to be gentle. I love the way Jude put it. He said, beloved, beloved. 
Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those that doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating the garment that's stained by the flesh. Jude says, what you do for others, do it out of your own walk with God, your own enjoyment of the mercy of God. Paul says, be like Jesus, be gentle. Matthew said, Jesus will not quarrel or cry aloud. He won't, you won't hear his voice in the street, a bruised reed. He will not break in a smoldering wick. He will not quench. This is Jesus, he's gentle, he's strong, but he's gentle. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I laid on my bed many a night as a teenager, realizing I was going to hell and not wanting to go to hell and asking God to save me in the night. But don't let me wake up in the morning because in the morning I know I'm going to go do what I want to do. I love sin. But I don't want to go to hell. And God never saved me because I was afraid of hell. But when the goodness of God touched my life, when I saw that God demonstrated his love For me, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That in my weakness and in my ungodliness and when I was his enemy, he loved me. This is what captures our heart. In gentleness, in the spirit of gentleness. And then thirdly, Someone who is watchful over his own life. He says, keep watch on yourself. You know, when you're rescuing sinners, you find yourself in places and situations that might become attractive, might even become persuasive. Why don't you join me in this? You know, look at what I have. Look at what I'm enjoying and No, he says, keep watch over yourself. You're not equipped to rescue believers unless you are gentle, unless you are spiritual, unless you are doing what Hebrews said, taking care of your own heart. Now let me go back to where I started. I told you at the beginning what I think your response should be to this message. If you're wandering away, come back. Come back. When the crowds left Jesus and he turned to his disciples and he said, will you go away also? Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will we go? Come back. And if you're 
fighting to walk with the Lord every day of your life. Then realize there's many who have lost the battle. They've given up. But don't give up on them. Save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sin. Go back and convert them. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to wayward sinners. I want you to leave here tonight thinking of someone specifically that you will, by the grace of God, pursue relentlessly as you would someone on their way to hell. Pursue them so that they will come back to the Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, maybe there's someone here tonight who will say, I want to come back. I am straying. And the Spirit of God tonight is speaking to my heart about the love of God and the glory of the cross and the wonder of what Christ did for me. And I want to come back. I want to repent. If God's speaking to you about that tonight, would you share that with me, just quietly slipping your hand up? Yes, I want to come back. Amen. Thank you, sir. Amen. 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 How many of you tonight will say, I know of someone who's wandering from the truth, who's wandered away, and before God tonight, I will make a commitment to try to rescue them, to bring the gospel to them again, to try to see them restored by the grace of God, I will do that. Would you let me know that tonight just by slipping up your hand? By the grace of God, I'll make that commitment. I know people. I know someone specifically. By the grace of God, I will pursue for God's glory. Father, we thank you tonight for your amazing grace. As we sang, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. Help us never to get over that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.